Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed a prize-winning author's searing new book, learned about beauty and neuroscience, and heard new music from some of Chicago's top acts. All this plus the debut of Keeper's Box, Are We Cool Yet?, and The Trump Diaries, all only on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 22, 2019. I-94 spoke with award-winning author Alex Kotlowitz in front of a sold-out audience at the Dial. Kotlowitz discussed his forthcoming book, An American Summer, discussed the plague of violence in Chicago's neighborhoods, and what, if anything, can be done to stop it. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We are joined, very happy to have him here, Mr. Alex Kotlowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Give him a big hand. If you guys don't know who Mr. Kolowitz is, he is an award-winning author. He's won awards across all kinds of media, in fact. I believe TV, radio, film, probably collecting, something like that as well. Uh, and you started out, of course, as a journalist. You were with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, like myself, actually, you started out with a free newspaper in Michigan, I believe, as well. That's right, yeah, a small alternative newspaper. It was called the Lansing Star, though right before I got there, it was published by some former students from Michigan State, and it was called uh-huh. the Joint Issue, and they wanted uh-huh. to go legit, so... So they, they uh, got the drop-the-weed references. So that, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> they, good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> so uh, you may know Mr. Kolowitz because he wrote a book, uh, whoa, it's got to be coming 25 years 20, ago. 28 years ago. 20 years ago, called yeah. There Are No Children Here. Now, that is a... Uh, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that's a canonical book, both in... Um, social reportage and in the history of Chicago because it was uh, focused on a family and a group of children who grew up in the projects here. I wanted to ask you, Alex, just to start off with, did you look at this volume as kind of a thematic follow-up to There Are No Children Here? And uh, you know, just to add on to that, why did you revisit, in a sense, a story that you may have told before? Right. So, yeah, I guess I sort of see this as a, I don't know, but as a kind of bookend to There Are No Children Here. You know, There Are No Children Here was, you know, as you said, 28 years ago, and it was, a, you know, about these two boys in the projects. And, I mean, as you alluded to, much of the story of their life, of course, revolved around all the violence in that community. And I will tell you the thing for me that's one of the things that's been really distressing is the stubborn persistence of the violence in this city. And I felt that while the book, that book addressed it, it didn't really get to what I wanted to get at in this book, which is sort of how the violence really gets in your bones, you know, how it comes to, to shape who you are and how you work so forcefully to keep it from defining you. That's it. And I want to, before we go into that, because I think there are some specific moments in the book where you really delve into that topic with a number of people who do surprising things. I'm thinking uh, in one case of a mother who gives some unusual testimony after her, uh, her son's involved in a shooting. Um, what is it about this city, do you think, that has such a problem with violence in pockets of this city? Yeah. It's not a widespread problem. It's in certain areas of this city. Why does that persist in this area? All right. Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is as bad as it is in Chicago, and we, for whatever reason, has become kind of the poster child for urban violence. I mean, we're not even in the top 10 worst cities in this country. I could have written this book in Baltimore, Philadelphia, New Milwaukee. Orleans, Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. you name it. So, but, but the thing about Chicago is because of our size, the numbers are considerably larger than anywhere else. And for whatever, for reasons I don't fully understand, we've been the epicenter of this really horrible murders around children yeah. um, or involving children. So, 
Um, but you're right that the the violence is really contained to a, a reasonably small part of the city, and and I think the kind of commonality in all these neighborhoods is these are neighborhoods that are deeply distressed and deeply neglected and deeply isolated from the rest of the city, and that's not unlike other cities as well. I mean, it just speaks to the great inequity and the segregation that still persists in this country. Uh, we do, we do have, let me ask one last one, Bob. We do have a lot of segregation in this city, but I kind of want to expand on that for a second because there are other areas of this city that are 30% white, 30% Latino, and 30% black in the classic kind of Chicago political sense. Not a lot, though. <laughs> Not a lot, but that we don't have, in, in areas that still are very segregated, we don't have that violence in them. Is there something specific about an Englewood or an Austin that makes it so much more prone to that violence than a, a neighborhood that might be right next to it that doesn't have that? Well, except that I think you find that most of the, the, the violence happens in all these neighborhoods that are just really struggling, where the sort of, I mean, I guess I, the, um, the, the story I always think about a number of years ago, there was a guy, Paul Collier, who wrote uh, The Bottom Billion, which is this actually, he used to work at the World Bank, but it's this book about the developing world and about how there's this cycle of violence in, in developing countries where there's this great inequity, where in places like Chad, for example, where everybody's poor, there's not a lot of violence, but it's where there's a real divide between the rich and the poor. And he comes to Chicago, and I met him during his visit, and he spent some time down on the south side, and he said, this is just what I'm writing about. He says, you walk out of your door in Englewood and you look at the gleaming downtown skyline, I think one of the most beautiful downtowns in the world, and you know what's not yours. And so you can't help but feel resentful. You can't help but feel that there's not much ahead of you. Um, and so, yeah, these are communities. I think the commonalities of these are communities that are just, as I said, just deeply distressed. Was that... Was that something you you intended? Did you try to look into to the root cause of all yeah. this stuff? So um, I got to say, you're right. I mean, I, I'm really up front in the beginning of the book. This is not a book about public policy or prescriptions, and it's in part because um, it's not my daily work. It's not my forte. Uh, and um, and the other thing is, truly, we don't know what works and what doesn't work. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you say in the book yeah. the the 2016 uh, crime lab report from the University of Chicago. They threw their hands up. They didn't know, yeah. you know, and I really admire those guys. And they, you know, and I also admired the fact that they were open about this. But, you know, in 2016, the numbers just exploded and they issued a report saying we, we don't know what happened, you know. But, um, but you know, for me, I just, I guess I, um, I mean, I'm a storyteller. It's what I love to do. Um, it's probably the only thing I'm still good at, maybe basketball, but that's, you know. I, I'll Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, but I just want to say, that, you know, we tell stories, though, not to, we tell stories to ask questions, not to answer them. And so that's why I tell stories. It was the same with There Are No Children Here. There was no attempt in that book to offer any prescriptions or to deal with public policy. Um, and, you know, my ambitions are, are somewhat modest. As you know, I guess I hope that, you know, uh, that you tell stories and it upends what people think they knew and challenges uh, their assumptions and just gets them to think about the world and themselves just a little bit differently. You know, if it does more than that, I feel pretty damn fortunate. Were there, were there a lot of stories you had to leave out? I mean, you did a ton of... Yeah, interviews. yeah, yeah. There were some stories I had to leave out. There was one story in particular I really, really, really wanted to write for the book, and I couldn't get the main subject of that story to cooperate. And, and I, and can you I, talk about it at all? Or? Um, can I talk about it? Yeah. Um, 
Maybe in broad strokes? Yeah, in broad strokes I can. So it's a story about, I, yeah, I won't get into the details, but it was a story about a security guard and a off-duty police officer who got into a tussle with uh, somebody who had been drinking, and um, and the upshot is that the the um, the person who'd been drinking got very aggressive, and they ended up killing him. Um, and I wanted to tell the story um, of the security guard, who it turns out was a, a, a Black Lives Matter activist, and she did this on her part time. But I I understand. I mean, it had to be really hard for her. Um, um, so that was a story I really wanted to tell, but couldn't get her to sit down with me. What resonated uh, a lot for me was the, um, it was a very uh, insightful look at trauma, mm -hmm. uh, I think, and, um, and as, you know, there are, there was no solutions. I mean, it's not a book like how do we figure out the violence, nobody knows how to, you know, how to figure out the violence in Chicago. I did want to mention uh, my friend Kristen over here that works for a, a group where they, uh, they work with, it's called Chicago Reach, correct? Chicago Ready, yeah. Chicago Ready. Right. And they work with uh, people that are, um, you know, very likely to become offenders, and they do jobs programs and then uh, therapy. And um, I actually saw the dean of Harvard Medical School speak about uh, trauma as a right. public health, right. you know, and, right. and a lot of politicians talk about it, uh, the good ones anyway. And, um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things, you know, um, I'm a veteran. You know, and I saw things that nobody should see. And now, you know, you got these kids that get shot, they stick a Band-Aid on them, send them home, you know, and, and this, I, I think these are things that, uh, for me, that was the main um, thesis of the book. I was like, people are traumatized and they need help. Well, actually, interesting enough, the, the guy who founded Chicago Ready is actually in the book, Eddie Bocanegra, um, whose story for me is just a remarkable one. I mean, he's an extraordinary individual, but, you know, he... Uh, at the age of 18, was running with a Latin gang, and a friend of his was shot and paralyzed. And so Eddie, in an act of vengeance, uh, shoots and kills a rival gang member and ends up serving 14 years in prison. And his story is very much a story about forgiveness, about asking, about trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he's done. But when Eddie's in prison, his brothers, who both served in Iraq and Afghanistan, come home and one of them is, is deeply traumatized by his experience and is telling Eddie about it. And Eddie's thinking to himself, that's me. That's what I've been through. And so Eddie started this remarkable program, Chicago Ready, where they're you know, not only providing jobs for young people, but also uh, putting them in, giving them cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to get them to be more self-aware about the trauma they've experienced. I wanted to expand a little bit on that because there's a, a passage, a story in the book about a, a student at a school who repeatedly keeps undergoing right. trauma after trauma. People are getting shot, people are getting killed. Um, there's domestic violence. He, it seems to some of the people who are supposed to be the support people at the school that he is simply unfeeling, and that's right. completely untrue. And you, you reference this sense that people are numb to the violence a number of times, and that's, that's not true. Right. Is this Thomas? Yeah, and one of the, one of the most for me, compelling things that I had not really considered was you tell the story of one of the social workers who was working with him who started having the symptoms of post-traumatic stress right. from dealing with some of these kids who right. were going home after seeing their friends shot. And I, I think that's kind of an unexamined um, until 
reading this book, that was kind of an unexamined part of the toll that the violence in the city is taking is on the social workers and on the educators who frequently are the only people that, that interact with these children. Right. No, they call it secondary or vicarious trauma, this sort of where you're not where you're impacted by the trauma because of the stories that you hear. And so, yeah, I mean, the story about Thomas you mentioned, you know, he was really, really kind of surly in high school, easy to add anger. And so there were people in the school who thought, well, this is just a, you know, uncooperative kid. But Anita, who had experienced her own trauma in her life, she saw some of herself in Thomas. And it's a story about this beautiful relationship between the two of them that continues well beyond their time, well, in, his there, time in high school. There's a, there's a chapter, its own story, about uh, a reporter right. who, who's affected in that way. Right, Pete right. Nikias, right. He, right uh, I mean, he bas his job was basically to tweet around the clock on the city's <clears throat> gun violence. Yeah, and Pete's out there, you know, he's out there going from murder to murder, and, um, and he's a kind of tough guy, you know, he sort of reminds me a little bit of a, you can mistake him for a cop, um, but it begins to really get at him. Um, it begins to, you know, he's beginning to realize he's seen things that he can't get out of his head, that yeah, he, there's a moment when he gets to a scene early and he's there before the police and the ambulance and he's got to administer first aid and he realizes, I'm not, I'm not beating them to the scene anymore. Um, right. uh, he starts to drink. Yeah, he's a, um, he's a really, uh, his work is, is also remarkable. Um, his work he did for the Tribune, he's now on a Neiman at Harvard, but yeah, he's a... Um, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I hesitate to talk about it in some ways because it feels um, in some ways so minimal to what the people in, that I spent time with went through. But there was a period when I was, uh, when I sat down to write the book um, that I went in, I never, never experienced anything, just a kind of really deep depression where I couldn't feel, I didn't feel any joy, I couldn't smile. And, um, and it took a while to come out of it. And, you know, I went into therapy, and, and there's no question looking back on it that it was this kind of secondary or vicarious trauma. I also had the catharsis of being able to sit down and tell these stories. Betty Heredia was visited by Chicago legends The Chandeliers. This excerpt of their performance was recorded live in Studio B.
Mario Smith talked about his favorite day of the year, Girl Scout Cookie Day, with members of Bridgeport's own Girl Scout troop. Smith and Olivia chatted about cookies, the history of the Scouts, and much more. News from the service entrance airs Thursdays at 2 p.m. My very special guest is my friend Olivia, who is a Girl Scout. And as you all know, this is the, the most wonderful time of the year. It's, it's, uh, it's cookie time. And God knows nobody's happy about that than me. One, two, three, four. Thin mints, thin mints, yeah. Fly, the most popular in the bunch. With Ever the heard this song before? Just no. Really? Yeah. It's the girl. It's this so is the Girl I'm Scout cookie song. I know. All right, and joining me in the studio is my friend Olivia, who is a bona fide Girl Scout. With badges and merit badges and stuff. How many badges you got? I don't know. Really? Wow, that many? I don't count them. Wow, that's what I'm talking about. You're doing work. So we're talking about Girl Scout cookies and you're selling cookies and you're, you've got an online enterprise and all that stuff. Tell me about your troop and, and tell me about the cookies. And yes, I'm going to order some cookies today. <laughs> well, our troop this year, we're trying to raise, I think, more than a thousand cookies. Mm-hmm. And so I've sold 243 cookies. By yourself? Yes. Whoa. That's so a lot of cookies. I'm doing pretty good. I would say so. I'm going to yeah. sell you some more cookies today. I'm going to get my friends who are listening to buy some from you. Mm-hmm. We, it's the last year for Savannah Smiles. Why? They're getting a new cookie. Oh. Disappointing. But it's, you know, that's okay. So people should buy it because of the novelty of it not being around anymore. Yeah. We, we, I think I asked you this <clears throat> when you were here last time. What's your favorite cookie? I like the trefoils. Really? Yeah. I'm a dosy dough guy. Oh. I just like the oatmeal and peanut butter combination. I think it's good. I like thin mints too. Mm-hmm. And you know the trefoils aren't so bad. Those are the ones that they that they had at my job that people took. Oh. They were gone, man. They were <laughs> They're gone. really good. They're very good. The butter cookies are delicious. Um. So how long have you been a Girl Scout, and how long have you been doing this selling cookies? Um, I think I've been a Girl Scout for around a year or two. That's it? Yeah. You seem really good at this. Like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I sold uh, last year um, just on the sheet, mm-hmm. like, no boob sales, which will be at for the next two weeks at Jackalope. Okay. Oh, the, oh wow. Nice. And, like, the first year I sold... More than eight hundred dollars worth of cookies. That's a lot of cookies. Yeah. So, so your goal, your goal is a thousand dollars worth of cookies, or a thousand boxes. No, the troops' goal is more than a thousand. Because I think you're going to get more than a thousand. I think I, th- worth? I think you're going to get more than three hundred cookies by the end of this weekend because my friends are frantic about cookies. They love cookies. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell them all first right now, folks. I want to uh, remind you that the Girl Scouts have been doing this for decades, right? This is a, a very, very good way for young ladies to learn how to manage money, how to run a business. And, and the cookies, man, the cookies are delicious. Don't be stupid. You love cookies. I love cookies. Nice good cookie with some almond milk, man. Mm, punch. So you've got an online uh, thing happening. You, you're selling cookies on Facebook, is it? Yeah. Okay, what's your? What, how would people, if they wanted to buy cookies today online how would they do it there is a like 
link, I think, mm-hmm. online. Her mom is here, so just relax, guys. <laughs> if you think that she she's not she's not getting coached, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Um. There's a link for it online, or you can yeah, so you can buy them offline mm-hmm. and then pay for them to be shipped to your okay. house. Okay. So if they wanted to buy directly from you, do they go to your Instagram or your Facebook? They would go to my mom's Facebook. Okay. And then there's, like, a post on it that's, like, it's a video, and it's, like, buy cookies. <laughs> and then you comment what you want. Okay. So so I guess we would have to ask permission from your mom. Is it okay if she gives the, uh, the Facebook page? It is. All right. So what? <laughs> she always gets you involved. She does. Okay, what, what's the, what's the Facebook page? It's Erica Clark Alejo. Okay, Erica. Spell yeah, spell it for me. A R I K A. A R I K A. Clark C L. Clark C L A R K. Alejo A L E J O. A L E J O. Alejo. I was spelling your name and saying it at the same time. Erica Clark Alejo, and and you can buy the cookies on of uh, Facebook. So that Olivia can sell more cookies because we want to make sure that she has the most uh, cookie sales since she took time out of her busy day to come and hang out with us. I appreciate you being here. Can I place my order now? Yes. All right. I've been waiting on this for weeks. Let me see. Take that. Uh, I need a pen. Do I have a pen? I don't have a pen. There's no one here. That side. Mom, you got a pen? Uh Uh-uh. I need a pen because this is a serious business. Pencil. That, that'll work. I'll I'll make sure I write neat. <laughs> All right. Um. So so you you're you're excited about the cookie sales and everything, and you're doing well. Yeah. All right. Because what I want is for you to to be really really good at this. I'm gonna get a box of dosi dos. That's for sure. And where are you, dosi do? There you go. So I want a box of dosi dos, and I want a box of because you like them. I get the tree foils, <laughs> and uh, wow, the I mints think, are vegan. Are they really? Yeah. Then I'll get a box of thin mints. Man, you're a good salesman. You didn't even have to twist my arm. All right, there you go. So, um, and how long before I get them? couple of weeks the next shipments i think coming in this weekend okay so maybe i'll see you next week yeah all right i'm i'm prepared thank you no please you ain't gotta thank me Hey, and welcome back to Keeper's Box. I'm Ader. And I'm Sebastian. So in Champions League, we moved on now to the quarterfinals. Tottenham versus Man City, Liverpool versus Porto, Ajax versus Juventus, and Manchester United versus Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started with uh, Tottenham and Man City. What you got? Uh, Man City, probably going to the finals. I don't see anybody getting in their way. Yeah, I think this one's kind of a 50-50 toss-up. If I had to take someone, I'll take Man City. Uh, Liverpool, Porto? 
I got to go with Liverpool because it's Liverpool. And from what they did last last year to Porto, yeah, I'm going Liverpool. I'm going to have to go with Liverpool also. Uh, Porto's been producing greatly, but I, I just don't think they're going to have it uh, yeah. for this match. Uh, for Ajax-Juventus, I'm going to go ahead and take Ajax uh, simply because I've been impressed by them. Uh, Juventus is an older team. We'll see what happens, uh, but I'm taking Ajax. Yeah, I'm going to take Ajax too just because I would love to – they're the Cinderella team for me of this whole tournament, so I'd like to see them go go ahead. That being said, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Manchester United versus Barcelona. I am going to take Manchester United because that's my team. I want them to win. Yeah. But realistically – yeah. I think Barcelona is going to take Come this on. one. Come on, it's Barca. So yeah. I got to go with Barca. Yeah, I have to go with Messi, huh? Always. Siempre Messi. All right, guys. <laughs> so make sure you keep an eye out for UEFA Champions League. Uh, April 9th uh, will be your first two games, and April 10th will be the second two games. After that, it'll go into bracket format. Whoever wins moves on. Now let's go ahead and talk about something a little bit more serious. Yeah. So as you may know, United States Soccer Federation is in a few problems. Uh, there's several lawsuits going up against it. Just a few problems. One of the problems that just appeared is the United States women's national team has filed a lawsuit uh, against United States Soccer for basically for not getting paid what they're what they're worth. Not getting yeah, not getting paid what they're worth. That's pretty yeah, much what it is. That seems to be going on going lawsuit. around <laughs> in the United States. Lawsuit. Uh, the United States Women's National Team has definitely been mistreated, in my opinion, by the United States Soccer Federation. If I were to speak freely about it, it's the United States Women's Soccer Team that puts soccer on the map in the United States. Yeah. Uh, everybody keeps talking about, oh, the introduction of MLS, uh, when the World Cup was held here, when the Men's World Cup was held here, Yeah. which is all fantastic and great. It has its own spot in soccer history. But the United States Women's Soccer Team is the strongest cornerstone in the building that is United States soccer. Yeah, I I'm at the point where I don't even, I don't know why we're still talking about this. I don't know why. What's the big deal of just paying them what they're worth? The issue is this: the idea of equal pay. I 100% agree with, and they should be getting paid exactly what the men are paying are getting paid. There's no argument there. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, I kind of think the women shouldn't accept equal pay. They should be getting paid more. Yeah, they have Why? produced a lot. Because more. they produce. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. They actually bring home stars, which is the only thing. We can talk about certain tournaments or whatever. It's the only thing that matters on the national cha- uh, national uh, you know, system and the national uh, stage. Yeah. It's the only thing that matters is to bring me absolutely. back a star. And they've brought us three. What have the men done? And that's they've what was crazy. failed to qualify and they lost to Trinidad and Tobago. They lost to Trinidad that's and what Tobago done. and a failure to qualify. And that hurt. And it has caused... And they're not getting paid equally? That's just, why are we even turmoil. talking about this? And it doesn't really just come down to just equal pay. It also comes down to the fields they get to practice on, the hotels they get to stay in, the travel, yeah. ca- uh, the travel uh, uh, setups that they have. Uh, the, to the point where even a little while ago, uh, Cordero, I believe, is the, new, the president of the United States Soccer, actually said, okay, well, we'll give you a few more charter flights. Why are Great. you still? Why are you That's barely, awesome. barely uh, giving them charter flights? So uh, yeah, like, a, a world championship is going to give me an extra charter flight. Yeah, oh, exactly. Great. Did, did you see? Uh, not only that, there was also the mistake, and, and uh, this is a topic that I'm not too too familiar with. I just saw that it happened, where they also put the three stars on the men's 
jersey, <laughs> uh, like on the back or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah. So like as a, as a participant as a, ribbon? Yeah, as they had, as is that they, what they that were is? part of actually winning. Uh, oh, and I don't know if that was man. a mess up from U.S. soccer or a mess no, up no, from no, just no, communication no. or whoever designed the shirt no, no, just no. didn't know what happens with the you stars. You don't get a star as a hand-me-down. <laughs> no, no, you no. earn you your star. You have to earn the star. So it was a, when I saw that, I was a pretty... And then not only that, the women, you know, it was something new. The women had the stars on their shorts, so they had the three. And then the men had them on the back of the jerseys. Yeah. And it was kind of a weird, like, back and forth where people were like, well, no, you know, it's because they're part of the United States program. It's like, that's not how it works. No. That's not how no. it works. Anyways, uh, the women, I think, have a, a good fight on their hand, and I hope that it, uh, they go ahead and win this yeah, one. Yeah, 100% support them, and I agree. All right. I'm Adrian. And I'm Sebastian. Have a good one, you The Keeper's Box with Sebastian and Adrian Aguirre. Audio highlights courtesy of NBC, Fox, ESPN, Turner, Sky, and the BBC. All rights reserved by their rights holders and used under fair news access. This is a production of Lumpin' Radio. This week on The Trump Diaries. Trump is forced to use a veto as Senate Republicans rebel. Trump claims his supporters will get violent if he is not re-elected. Trump mounts increasingly bizarre attacks on the late John McCain. Trump claims the media is blaming him for the massacre in New Zealand. And Congress moves to investigate the woman at the center of a human trafficking ring linked to Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 785, March 15th. The Senate overturned Trump's national emergency declaration. The resolution passed 59 to 41 with 12 Republicans joining every Democrat. Ahead of the vote, Trump claimed that, quote, a vote for today's resolution by Republican senators is a vote for Nancy Pelosi crime and the open border Democrats. After the vote, Trump tweeted, veto. Trump then claimed his tough supporters, the police, military, and bikers for Trump, could turn violent against Democrats and things could get very bad, very bad. Trump also claimed that, quote, the left plays it cuter and tougher like with all the nonsense that they do in Congress. Trump's comments came just as news of a massacre at two mosques in New Zealand left 49 people dead. The gunman in that shooting praised Trump, quote, as a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose in a manifesto released to the web just minutes before the shootings. The shooter also quoted Trump, saying immigrants, quote, are invaders within our lands. Last week, Trump called undocumented immigrants coming to the United States an invasion. When asked about the clear surge in crimes driven by white nationalist extremists, up 12% in this calendar year alone, Trump denied that he was responsible or that white nationalism was to blame, saying, quote, I think it's a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Trump then claimed the fake news media was attempting to blame him for the mass shooting, it, calling it so ridiculous. Trump continued to rail against the Mueller investigation, saying there should be no report at all. Quote, this was an illegal and conflicted investigation in search of a crime. Russian collusion was nothing more than an excuse by the Democrats for losing an election they thought they were going to win. This should never happen to a president again. A former contestant on The Apprentice has been allowed to proceed with a defamation lawsuit against Trump. Some reservos accused Trump of sexual predatory behavior. Trump called Zervos and other accusers liars, prompting her to file a lawsuit. Trump's argument was that the case should be delayed until he was out of office. That was rejected under the precedent set in Clinton versus Jones. And Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said that he would protect Trump's privacy if the House Democrats request Trump's tax returns. Quote, we will examine the request and we will follow the law and we will protect the president as we would protect any taxpayer. House Democrats are asking for those documents under a 1924 law that allows them to see anyone's tax returns. 
Day 786, March 16th. Trump said Fox News, quote, must bring back key ally Jeanine Pirro. Pirro was suspended for questioning a Muslim lawmaker's loyalty to the United States on the air. Trump tweeted, quote, the radical left Democrats working closely with their beloved partner, the fake news media, is using every trick in the book to silence a majority of our country. Trump also tweeted his support for Tucker Carlson, who has faced criticism for a series of racist, xenophobic, and sexist comments he made on a radio talk show with Bubba the Love Sponge. Quote, stay true to the people that got you there. Keep fighting for Tucker and fight hard for, quote, Judge Janine. Trump is considering sending a volunteer force to the southern border. The Department of Homeland Security reacted coolly to the proposal with an official saying, quote, the move is just a buttress the administration's claim that there's an emergency there. Trump has quietly expanded rules that would disqualify more visa applicants living abroad, as well as those in the United States, that the administration claims are using too many public services. Trump told Breitbart, quote, he doesn't want all these people coming in here on welfare. The programs that can disqualify a visa applicant under Trump's new rules include the school lunch program and reduced bus fare programs for seniors. Day 707, March 17th. Trump attacked the late John McCain on Twitter. Trump claimed falsely that McCain had, quote, sent the fake dossier to the FBI and the media hoping to have it printed before the election. This is false. Trump claimed that McCain, who died seven months ago, had far worse stains than the dossier, including thumbs down and repeal and replace after years of campaigning to repeal and replace. McCain's daughter, Megan, responded, saying, quote, Trump leads a pathetic life. Your life is spent on your weekends, not with your family, but obsessing over great men you could never live up to. Megan subsequently received death threats. The FAA is under scrutiny in the wake of two crashes involving the Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet. The Department of Transportation is headed by Elaine Chao, who happens to be the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The FAA was left without a leader from January 2018 until today. Trump had refused to nominate anyone. He nominated a former Delta Airlines pilot, Steve Dixon. The FAA and DOT apparently did not review the software of the new Boeing planes. That software has been blamed for the two crashes. And Trump quietly slashed the fines nursing homes would have faced if they had found to have endangered or injured a resident. The average fine has dropped nearly 40% under Trump. Day 788, March 18th. Federal authorities raided the office of Elliot Brody, seeking information on Trump's inauguration. Brody had served as Trump's campaign fundraiser and was the national deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee until he resigned in April 2018. He resigned because he had secretly paid off a former Playboy model in exchange for her silence about an affair. It has been mooted that the affair was actually being had by Trump and that Brody took the fall. Regardless, Michael Cohen arranged a $1.6 million payout to the Playboy model. Federal agents searched Brody's office for documents related to China, Saudi Arabia, and a Miami Beach Club promoter related to conspiracy money laundering and crimes associated with illegal lobbying on behalf of foreign nationals. The House Judiciary Committee said it received tens of thousands of documents related to its investigation into whether Trump abused his power, obstructed justice, or engaged in public corruption. Trump, however, has ignored the House Judiciary request for documents. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler had set a deadline asking for documents related to the firing of James Comey, as well as records about payments Trump had made as part of a hush money scheme. Trump said he wanted General Motors' Ohio plant to be, quote, opened or sold to a company who will open it up fast. General Motors had idled five factories in North America and cut roughly 14,000 jobs to trim costs, largely brought on by Trump's tariffs. Trump added that the president of the UAW ought to get his act together and produce. The head of the UAW responded that he had no idea what Trump was talking about. Trump has barred Rudy Giuliani from doing TV interviews after the alleged lawyer said the Trump Tower Moscow talks 
lasted through the election. Day 789, March 19th. It has been revealed that federal authorities began investigating the email accounts of Michael Cohen only months after Trump took office. Cohen's emails dating back to January 2016 were sought by the special counsel. He was looking into Cohen's possible work as a foreign agent. In particular, Mueller was seeking records of any funds or benefits received or offered to Cohen on behalf of any foreign government. Congressional Democrats have asked the FBI to investigate the owner of a Florida massage parlor who allegedly sold access to Trump. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer called on federal agents to investigate, quote, public reports about alleged activities by Ms. Lee Cindy Yang and her apparent relationship with the president. Her massage parlor was named as a prostitution center in the arrest of Patriot Tony Robert Kraft. Yang had claimed on her website that she could provide access to the president and members of his family to clients from China. Deutsche Bank loaned more than $2 billion to Trump over nearly two decades, despite learning that Trump had overvalued some of his assets by up to 70%. The bank repeatedly loaned money to Trump despite multiple business-related red flags, including instances where Trump exaggerated his wealth by an extra $2 billion in order to secure additional loans from that bank. Trump announced he would designate Brazil as a major non-NATO ally. Trump also said he would be opening granting Brazil full NATO membership. Brazil can actually not join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. President Jair Bolsonaro said Brazil and the United States stand, quote, side by side in their efforts to ensure liberties and respect to traditional family lifestyles, respect to God, our creator, against the gender ideology or the politically correct attitudes and against fake news. Trump continued to attack the late Senator John McCain, telling reporters he was never a fan and never will be. Trump also praised Bolsonaro's use of the term fake news and said it was disgraceful that McCain voted against repealing key parts of Obamacare. They got to a vote and he said thumbs down. I think that's disgraceful. There are other things. Trump also called Kellyanne Conway's husband a total loser and tweeted out a series of falsehoods about him. The spectacle of a president attacking a trusted aide's spouse is a new one. George Conway had said last week that whether or not impeachment is in order, a serious inquiry needs to be made about this man's condition of mind. A nonplussed Kellyanne meekly said on TV that she didn't think Trump would, quote, just sit there and take it. The Supreme Court ruled that the government can detain immigrants indefinitely with past criminal records, even if they have been previously released from criminal custody. That ruling gives Trump more authority to arrest, detain, and deport immigrants convicted of crimes. The EPA won't extend the public comment period for its controversial proposal to restrict the number of streams and wetlands that receive Clean Water Act protections. Instead, the agency and Army will stick to the 60-day comment period for the Waters of the U.S. rule. Rod Rosenstein, who oversaw the Mueller probe until the confirmation of William Barr to be Attorney General, has decided to postpone his resignation. He was to have left this month. And Devin Nunes, a key Trump ally in the House, is suing Twitter and an anti-Trump Republican operative for defamation. Nunes said that two parody accounts, at Devin Nunes Mom and Devin Cow, had mocked him. Quote, one, a dairy cow in Iowa made fun of him and accused him of crimes no human being should after have to bear and suffer in their whole life. Nunes has filed suit for $250 million. In the wake of filing that suit, Devin Cow has more followers now than Devin Nunes' own account. Day 790, March 20th. Trump called Robert Mueller's report illegitimate because Mueller was never elected. He then complained to reporters he, quote, now has to deal with somebody writing a report despite having won one of the greatest elections of all time. Trump then called for Mueller's report to be made public, saying, let it come out, let people see it, we'll see what happens. I don't mind if it's made public. I look forward to seeing the report. Trump went on to refer to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein as just a deputy who was appointed, who then appointed another man to write a report before asking for somebody to explain that because my voters don't get it and I don't get it. 
In fact, Trump nominated Rosenstein for his position. He was then confirmed by a Republican-controlled Senate, 94-6. A federal judge has again blocked Trump's ban on transgender people in the military. The judge confirmed a 2017 court order blocking the ban remains in place. The White House had released a memo last week saying it planned to implement the ban in April because, quote, there is no longer any impediment to doing so. Judge Colleen Culler-Catelli said defendants are incorrect in claiming there is no longer an impediment. A federal judge also ruled the Interior Department violated federal law by failing to take into account the climate impact of its oil and gas leasing in the West. That move could have sweeping implications for the president's plan to boost fossil fuel production across the country. The judge temporarily blocked drilling on roughly 300,000 acres of land in Wyoming after concluding the Interior's Bureau of Land Management did not sufficiently consider climate change when making decisions to auction off the federal land. Trump escalated his attacks on the husband of Kellyanne Conway, tweeting, George Conway, often referred to as Mr. Kellyanne Conway by those who know him, is very jealous of his wife's success and angry that I, with her help, didn't give him the job he so desperately wanted him. I barely know him, but just take a look, a stone-cold loser and husband from hell. George Conway responded, you are nuts. Trump also continued to assail McCain, who has been dead for months. Speaking in Ohio, Trump claimed, I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which his president and I had to approve. I don't care about this, but I didn't get a thank you. McCain, of course, was dead and could not thank Trump for his own funeral. He then claimed McCain didn't get the job done for our great vets in the VA by refusing to repeal Obamacare and attacked him for a war in the Middle East, apparently a reference to late senator's support for the Iraq war. This is a new bizarre low, Meghan McCain said. Hope Hicks said she would turn over documents to the House Judiciary Committee as part of its investigation into potential obstruction of justice by Trump. Hicks, who was the White House former communications director, was considered Trump's closest aide. 62% of Americans think the special counsel's investigation is both necessary and fair. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Mertz spoke with Lucas Corner in Caracas about the crisis in Venezuela. Corner discussed the collapse of the state, the dirty war raging on in the streets, and the left's blind spots towards the nation and the Maduro regime. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. The left and progressives are trading cover for the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela by the U.S. and their Western allies. Here to tell us how the left is supporting the coup our return guest, journalist, and political analyst, Lucas Kerner, posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Lucas. Great to be here, Chuck. Great to hear you on a phone and everything. Look at you. Aren't you fancy? What happened last weekend? Oh, just, uh, you know, 40, you know, two-day blackout, you know, just one of those things. In fact, you know, we have water now. We had electricity yesterday. I'll have you know, the I am sacrificing my morning shower with running water for you, Chuck, to show how much I value you. <laughs> Please don't do that when I'm within uh, smelling distance. Lucas, uh, according to the New York Times last week, headline, as blackout per- uh, plunges a Venezuela in darkness, Maduro blames the U.S. That uh, story reads, the Minister of Electrical Power, Luis Moda Dominguez, said on state television that the blackout was caused by an attack on the Guri Dam, a large hydroelectric facility in eastern Venezuela. Information Minister Jorge Rodriguez 
also on the state news network, said that right-wing criminals had committed sabotage to the damn system of generation and distribution. Your power went out and we were unable to talk last week. Is there any more evidence or is there any evidence at all that this was sabotage? And is this a new step, you think, in the level of intensity in the attempt to overthrow Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro? I think there's three things to consider. The first one is that you know it's widely reported and widely acknowledged that Venezuela's electrical grid suffers from long-term underinvestment, lack of maintenance, and you know it's also corruption that has you know made the system vulnerable to attack. The second fact is all of the above has been exacerbated deeply by the impact of U.S. economic sanctions, as the New York Times even reported, buried in the end of one of their articles, uh, reporting that the the backup uh, thermal electric generators near the Guri that could have uh, prevented the system from totally crashing powered by uh, fuel by gasoline were not able to come online due to U.S. economic sanctions. Now, the third fact is, you know, as Forbes just reported in an article speculating about the possibility of this being a cyber attack, the United States has a very sophisticated cyber warfare command and you know, definitely has the capacity to do this, as we've seen in the uh, episode in Ukraine with the electrical system likewise coming down and, you know, likewise the Iranian virus uh, by the United States and the Israelis. That being said, neither the government nor the opposition has released you know, any kind of, you know, full, concrete, substantive evidence to support their different uh, explanations of what happened. The opposition is that there's a bushfire, but of course that is itself very implausible and has been refuted by experts. Uh, the, the government is claiming that it's a cyber attack on the, the mainframe, the, the, the IT mainframe of the system. Um, but again, they haven't released. We're obviously, you know, this is a few days have gone by and, you know, we're still waiting for, um, concrete evidence about whether this was a cyber attack or not. But at the same time, clearly, it's, you know, it's an IT problem, it appears, not a fundamental infrastructure problem. And as such, that would indicate that, you know, the, the hypothesis of a cyber attack does have some weight to it. CBS Evening News yesterday reported that many airlines are canceling flights to Venezuela because it's too dangerous. That's just that's all they said about it. How dangerous is it in Venezuela today? I mean, it's pretty incredible because of anybody who just wants to come to Caracas and walk down the streets. I mean, particularly during the, this, you know, uh, blackout that we, you know, lived through, you know, last week, that things were very calm. You know, I was surprised because if you were to have a, a blackout for, you know, three, four days in Chicago or Philadelphia or New York, I mean, you would see massive looting. You'd, you know, see massive outbreaks of violence, likely. In Caracas, things were very calm. There were some isolated cases of looting. But people were very, you know, disciplined and organized, helping each other uh, out in, in these difficult conditions. And, you know, the, the reality of Caracas certainly is, you know, has a high homicide rate and, you know, has, there's a lot of, you know, crime and such. But, you know, it's, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I don't feel at all unsafe living here for years. And, you know, definitely you just know how to know how to, you know, behave in a city as such. So you had this article that was at VenezuelaAnalysis.com called The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela, where you warned that the global north-left critique of authoritarianism in Venezuela serves as ideological cover for the current coup and impending dirty war pushed by Washington. You write that in a recent piece for Jacobin magazine, Gabriel Hetland mapped out what he believes should be the left position vis-a-vis the ongoing U.S.-led coup effort in Venezuela. Hetland correctly observes that there is, quote, absolutely no justification for U.S. sanctions or military intervention in Venezuela, which must be opposed by leftists and progressives the world over. 
So before we get to where you disagree, you were just mentioning how the New York Times buried within their articles and within any of their coverage. I, 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 re- I very rarely hear anything about the impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. What do we? What does the public miss in understanding? And how aware do you think the U.S. public is that the majority of the problems that they're having with Venezuela's economy are being inflicted through economic sanctions led by the U.S. and the West? I think the first thing to understand is that, contrary to mainstream media reporting, sanctions did not begin on January 29th when the U.S. imposed a trade embargo against the country. Rather, sanctions began in really when Barack Obama declared Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, declaring a national emergency for U.S. national security, and therefore creating the legal framework for the subsequent imposition of all uh, sanctions. This is clear that when a country, as, as the economist Francisco Rodriguez, who is arguably his opposition, pro-opposition, and is considered the foremost expert on Venezuela's economy, has argued that when you declare a country, a, you know, an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, this, you know, obviously creates a de facto financial embargo and, and you know, economic embargo in which U.S. transnational corporations and other transnational corporations, international financial institutions, are less inclined to do business with the country, and a, a whole host of them left the country following this executive order by Obama that was subsequently renewed two times and then renewed by Trump. So what you see is following then in August 2017, Trump imposes a a, a de jure financial embargo on the country, which prevents uh, U.S. creditors from engaging in new debt dealings with the Venezuelan state and with its oil company. And this conservative estimates find that the result of this being $6 billion in lost oil revenues. That's around 6% percent of Venezuela's GDP, you know, to consider that healthcare spending in the region averages around 7% of GDP. So this was absolutely devastating. And, you know, Venezuela, it led to a precipitous decline of Venezuela's oil industry, the loss of some 700,000 barrels of production in the year following uh, the imposition of those sanctions, which has not been reported in the media at all. And then, you know, most recently, we have this, this oil embargo imposed on January 29th, which effectively prohibits U.S. Uh, corporations from selling oil to PDVSA, Venezuela's state oil company, but also from purchasing it. And Venezuela was selling 500,000 barrels a day of oil to the United States. It was its number one cash purchaser. So this, according to John Bolton, is going to cause Venezuela to lose $11 billion in oil uh, exports, oil revenues, just this year in 2019. And Francisco Rodriguez estimates that the cumulative impact on Venezuela's economy is going to be a contraction by 26%. I mean, that's a, a quarter, over a quarter of Venezuela's economy being destroyed. This is going to destroy what is left of Venezuela's economy. And as economist uh, Mark Weisbrot has estimated, this is already killing thousands, if not tens of thousands, and will kill many more. And this is you know, absolutely criminal and should be opposed by you know, any ethical person on the planet. The Vandercook School of Music's percussion ensemble took the stage at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. This excerpt showcases the timpani and marimba and was recorded live in Studio A by Neil Gaynor.
Are we doing yet? 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 Are we doing? What's your next tip, do you? Um, yeah, I got another one. Um, this is more of a social tip. Okay. More of a sort of a uh, well, I mean, establishing dominance is social, but this is more specifically mm-hmm. tuned into social. Um, try and go in with a gimmick, right? So it's New Year, New You, but mm-hmm. don't don't spread your focus too thin. You know, hone in on one thing that you want to be remembered for or in more likely you're willing to be remembered for, right? Mm-hmm. So when I say pick a gimmick, you want to be the blank kid, right? Sure. You could be the yo-yo kid. You could be the skateboard kid. You could be the sailing kid mm-hmm. if you're of a certain wealth bracket. Sure. Um, you know – uh, I, f- for example, this is this is more going back to high school, but you know what I was? I was the trench coat kid, and everyone, everyone, I was the trench coat and the fedora kid, uh-huh. um, because it made me look really cool, um, and a lot of people respected that. They'd see me with my fedora and my trench coat, and they'd be like, "That is, there's a go, there goes fedora kid," and I knew that was respect. And and that's how I will be remembered by those people forever. And you will be remembered. Yeah. What were, did you have a gimmick in high school? Did you have a gimmick in middle school? Uh uh I was I was the kid that uh I was the kid that always put milk on their pizza when they ate it. It's already, there's already cheese up. I don't understand the problem. There's already cheese up there that's made of dairy. What's the problem here? The fact that you're so defensive about this leads me to believe that you had a bad experience with with No, the- they remembered me. They sure remembered me. I didn't I lived my I've been living my le- best life since 2009, you know. What is what is Dan what is Danny Rodriguez doing now? He's probably working at fast food. I have a successful radio show. No, that's that that's fair. That's fair. I I you know, yeah, and that's how you'll be that is how you will be remembered forever, and yeah. that's, that's, that's the successful milk pizza kit. Are we doing yet? 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 Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.